So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we begin reading at verse 11. After Paul has set forth the great truths of redemption, and that very famous passage, or well-known, we should say, uh, for by grace you have been saved, in verse 8, through faith, note that, it's going to come up in our sermon today, for by grace, that is God's undeserved favor, you have, have been saved, you're in a state of salvation. The Greek text here is very interesting. Uh, it's a uh, what we call a periphrastic construction. Paul uses two verbs to express it. You have been saved. It's literally you are having been saved. That's the you know uh, the, the state that you're in. You presently are having been saved. So you it took place in past time, but that's your condition right now before God. Your sins are forgiven. You belong to Him. For by grace. If we were to be literal, we'd say, for by grace you are having been saved. All right, And the English conveys that. Uh, You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It has nothing to do with anything that came forth from us. It was not because there was some latent goodness in us. Paul started chapter 2, or the section that we call chapter 2, Paul started that by saying he made you alive when you were dead in trespasses and sins. And remember, not neutral, because he says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. That's uh, chapter 2, verse 2. He was saying you were dead in trespasses and sins, but it was not neutrality. It was opposition. It was open warfare against God. You were fighting against God and thereby fighting against your own salvation. That's the condition they were in, the Ephesians, and all men are before they're converted, before they're saved, and by God's grace brought to this saving faith in Christ that Paul speaks of in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Uh, It is the gift of God. You know, some have disputed and said, well, the grammar, when it says that not of yourselves, is it referring to the grace or is it referring to the faith? And the answer is yes, he's referring to both. The process of being saved by grace through faith, that's God's work. Note that. It's not of yourselves. It didn't come forth from you. It is the gift of God. And on that basis, he can say, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he tells us what's going on in our lives. He told the Ephesians and had it written down, and God's preserved it so we could read his word. For we are his workmanship. That is, we're the ones that he's working on. Remember I pointed out the word for workmanship in the original is the Greek word poimea. Uh, and it is the word where the word poetry comes from. And some have said, we, you could say, well, can you say we are his poetry? And that'd be a little bit of a stretch. That's not how Paul's using the word here. But the word does have the idea of, you know, the Greeks. The poetry there wasn't like Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow or Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, etc. Those are cute little poems. Uh, a poem, or poema in Greek, was an epic poem. Poem. Um, you have you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, all these various epic poems that were written, and they set forth you know, histories and truths, etc. And so when he uses this, you know, you're not God's uh, doggerel rhyme, okay? You're his epic poetry. And so... We are his workmanship, his poimea, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I love it that Paul says that. You know, creation, when you were created, uh, God created your soul, 
when you were conceived, you, you know, you were born um, later, but at the moment of conception, you were created. God created your soul and brought you into being at that moment. You had nothing to do with that. If someone was to say, well, you know, you made a decision to exist. And it's like, really, how'd you do that? Okay, you didn't. It's like, well, you know, when the creation made a decision to exist in Genesis 1-1, you'd go, no, that's not what it says. And obviously, that's not what happened. Logically, that can't be because creation didn't exist until it was created. And so what Paul's saying here is this is entirely 100% God's work. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He did this. He brought this about for good works. So we used to walk according to the uh, course of this world, that is this fallen world, according to the prince of the power of the air in verse 2 he said the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience says of who among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and we're by nature children of wrath just as others he said we used to walk contrary to god contrary to life we walked in the realm of darkness and death and we were okay with that because we were darkness and death ourselves we were dead in trespasses and sins but now in Christ Jesus, you've been created anew. It's his work, 100%. But again, it's not neutrality. It's that you, you would walk in good works, which God prepared beforehand. He foreordained the good works in your life, that we should walk in them. So as we, before our salvation, were active in wickedness, so now God has ordained that we would be active in his service and that we would love him and that we would do those things according to his word that are pleasing to him. So it's great. You know, God didn't just save you so that you could do nothing. He saved you so that you could serve him. So if you're wondering, well, what, what should I be doing in my life? Well, get your Bible out and get on your knees and start praying. Say, Lord, show me what you want me to do. You've said you've, you've preordained, you've prepared beforehand good works that we, that's corporately referring to the church, but each one of us individually as members of it, uh, good works that we should walk in. And Lord, what are the good works you would have me walk in? And then keep your eyes open because God will give you opportunity. You know, you, you, if you were to say like, oh, well, you know, I um, I had all these people requesting help this week. I didn't have a chance to pray and find out what God wants me to do. <laughs> you know, God will bring opportunities across your path to help people or to speak a word of kindness and encouragement to them, perhaps share the gospel. Uh, that happens in your own families. Uh, that happens in uh, our workplaces or school or just out and about, you know, in the community. God will bring you an opportunity for good works into your life so that you can serve him. How do we know that? Because he just said so right here in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. God has preordained or prepared beforehand good works that we should walk in them. And that has to do with us as individuals and as his church. All right, that's the background of what we're going to look at in the next three verses today, 11, 12, and 13. He says, therefore, because of all these wonderful truths that we've just considered, Paul says, therefore remember that you were uh, you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, uh, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. But, but now, Paul said, you know, he, he, the word but was there once before in verse 4. I mean, he talked about us being dead in trespasses and sins. In verse 4 of chapter, he said, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And then he began to unfold the gospel. Now he says, you were without hope in the world. You were without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that is away from God, away from the promises, away from his people, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, when he says that, he means what happened at the cross changed everything. Everything was changed there. That's the focal point of human history. It's that day outside the gate, the north gate in Jerusalem, near the, at the hill Calvary, by that hill, Christ was crucified. There his blood was shed. There he offered the, himself for us. He, he offered the sacrifice that alone could take away our sins, not just for time, but for all eternity. Christ, by his shedding his blood, which is a term literally refers to his blood being shed, but it's also a term used to describe his sacrifice, his sufferings, everything he went through when his blood was shed for us. <clears throat> because of that, we've now been brought near. There's a change that's taken place. All these things that we were before, the condition, the state that we were in, note what he says, of being without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, that means foreigners without any citizenship rights, uh, from the covenants of promise, all the promises that God had given to his people that are fulfilled in Christ, we had nothing to do with any of those. He's talking to the Ephesians here as Gentile believers. And he, he reminds him of that in verse 11. Uh, having no hope, there was nothing in your life that could produce hope. And without God in the world, literally atheist, but he doesn't just mean that you had bought into a system, a philosophical system of denying God. He means you were literally atheos. You were, theos means God, as alpha privative, we call it in grammar. You were without God. You were non-God having, okay, you could say. Um, that was your condition. You were lost. You were on your way to hell. You were under the wrath of God because of your sins justly, because of what you had done and thought and were, not just because of your actions, but because of your very being, being in opposition to God and being dead in trespasses and sins and fighting against him uh, and his word. And so you were in a horrible condition but now, in Christ Jesus, God made the difference. So if we look at this, the first thing we find is Paul directs the Ephesians to remember. When he says, therefore, remember, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. Again, you know, I try to emphasize where God has these imperatives in Scripture. You know, different things in grammar, if you're an English grammar nut, okay. I guess I kind of am sometimes. Uh, you have different uh, forms of your verb. You have an indicative form where you just make a statement. It's a nice day today. Okay, that's making a statement. That's an indicative. You have a subjunctive like, well, I would like to go. Okay, that's, we want to know, well, are you or aren't you? I would like to do that. Okay, are you going to? See, a, a subjunctive doesn't always give you the uh, definiteness. But then you have an imperative. The imperative, and in grammar we say, it's, it's kind of true, but it's almost humorous, except we're dealing with seriously. 
they say that you know you have the indicative which is as close to reality as you can get because in the writer or speaker's mind it's a fact it is a nice day the horse is in the field etc okay the subjunctive is kind of removed from reality it maybe is or maybe isn't you know uh, the horse might be in the field all right if you're going to go take a load of hay out to the to the horse or take some carrots or something out there to your neighbor's horse i know some of you do that uh, horses are always happy. They don't care who gives them that. But if I say the horse might be in the field, all right, well, should I take a big bag of carrots or even a few? Is he or isn't he? Well, the subjunctive removes from reality. But they say, grammatically, the farthest removed from reality is the imperative, which is, well, that's when God tells us to do something. It's like, yeah, it's not necessarily going to happen, though, okay, um, because of human nature and other things. In, the imperative is one will speaking to another will, saying, do this, you go. So the horse is in the field, the horse might be in the field, go feed the horse, or go give the horse a carrot, or whatever, something like that. So that's the imperative, that's giving a command. Now when God does it by his spirit, they come about, that's what makes the difference. But humanly speaking, when we you know, give orders to people, <laughs> sometimes you know, it's like, go do this, and it's like, yeah, right, sure, okay, or just, no. All right. Uh, you don't want to be doing that with God. Here, Paul is giving them a command, and he's telling them that this is something they need to continue doing. He's not saying that they didn't know this. He's saying start remembering this, or keep remembering it, I should say, not begin. This is an ongoing, this is a, a present imperative. So he says, uh, we can translate this, therefore you must remember, you must remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh. The ones who were called uncircumcision by those who were called circumcision. He's talking about the Jews that they refer to the Gentiles as uh, uncircumcision. It's a very pejorative term, by the way, in the original and in English. Uh, they referred to the, you know, they didn't refer to them as people. They said, although the uncircumcised, all right, uh, they knew the Gentiles by their failure to be in conformity to God by having the covenant sign that God gave to Abraham of, of the men all being circumcised. So the uh, Jews simply referred to the Gentiles, and it is a pejorative term. It wasn't used as a term of endearment, saying, oh, those really nice Gentile people. We'll call them the uncircumcised, so you know, say something nice about it. No, it was a very mean term. But he says, you, you're called, you were called at that time. He doesn't dispute it. They were in that condition. Uh, uncircumcised. That, that doesn't just mean that they hadn't had their flesh cut and received the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That means that everything it meant to be outside of God's covenant, they were. They were uncircumcised. And it names off what that means. They were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope and they were without God in the world. They were without Christ. And so the, to say they were uncircumcised is simply saying those who were going to hell, basically. Uh, so it was a pretty harsh term, but it wasn't necessarily untrue. And Paul's saying, you need to remember you, they might have said that to you in a mocking, scoffing, derisive manner, but it was true. That is the condition that you were in. You might not have liked it. You maybe wanted to be rather referred to as a Greek or a Roman or a Parthian or a Scythian or a Persian, but they said they just called you uncircumcised, which was quite an insult. Uh, but he says, you know, it was true, though, what they were saying. It wasn't nice what they said, but it was factual. You really were without God and cut off from his covenant. And as he says that, you were called uncircumcision in, uh, by those who were called circumcision 
in the flesh made by hands. He said they have the outward sign. They're not in Christ, though. They didn't have the reality that that sign pointed to, which is being born again, having your, your flesh separated uh, you know, so that you're not under its control. But uh, the, that sign of circumcision, you know, has, has been done away with in Christ. You know, since they, well, aren't we supposed to be circumcised? Christ was circumcised for us. He fulfilled all the law. That's why Paul refers to the circumcision of Christ, meaning Christ was historically circumcised for us on the eighth day, but it also refers to the work that he does in our hearts. As you know, we've been reading through Jeremiah, and several times Jeremiah exhorted the uh, uh, Hebrews of his day to have their hearts circumcised. Moses spoke of it also. There's a need for a work of grace to be done in our hearts. And he, they use that term. So here he says that those who they have the outward sign, but they still scoffed at the Gentiles. He said that's that was the condition you were in. And so he reminds them of that. So they were without Christ. He says in the next verse, without Christ, in whom all the blessings and promises of the covenant are found. Notice Paul when he says what their horrible or their sad condition was. He starts off by saying that at that time they were without Christ. Uh, and that is, they were cut off from all the blessings. They had no place or part in the citizenship of Israel. He says they were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. The word commonwealth uh, means that they were not citizens. They had no claim upon any of God's promises. They couldn't say, well, God has promised to my forefathers that, uh, you know, that he would make his covenant with us. They couldn't do that. They, they were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, and so he reminds them of that. He says, you all need to remember this. Don't forget what you were. They were foreigners to the covenant of promise. The word stranger literally means foreigners, aliens. They were aliens to the covenants of promise. They had no citizenship rights. Uh, they had no claim upon God's covenant promises. Uh, they were not citizens of God's kingdom, and therefore they possessed zero claims upon his covenant mercies. There was nothing outwardly or inwardly in them that they could point to and say, oh, Lord, you must have mercy upon me because you promised this to me or my ancestors. They couldn't. Uh, they were in a hopeless condition. Note that. They were without hope. They themselves were powerless. This is important. They were powerless to alter the condition and standing. They were without hope. You know, there's situations you can be, you know, if you're out on the ocean and, you you know, you're in a boat and, you're, you know, it sinks and you get in the lifeboat, well, you still have something you can go with. You look around, Mel, there's no paddle. All right, well, you might be able to make one. You might be able to figure out some way to get some direction or make a sail or something like that. You have a little bit of hope. You're able to do something. You see, you were without hope. You were in a situation where there was nothing you could do to alter your hopeless situation. That's what it means to be without hope. It's not like, well, if you work hard, you can find a way out of this mess. Uh-uh, he's saying there was no way out of it for you except God and his plan. That's what he's telling them. You were in a, a hopeless condition. You, they were not able to alter their condition of standing, neither were they able to change that hopelessness themselves. They were without hope, cut off from every promise and everything that would give them hope. He says, remember that was your condition. Don't start thinking that there was some little spark of goodness in you that couldn't keep God, you know, so God couldn't be kept away. You know, you just God couldn't stay away because you were just so sweet and awesome in yourself. That's what the world and Satan would tell you. That's not true. There was nothing in you that would draw God toward you. There was nothing in you that did anything except provoke God's just wrath. 
Everything you said, every thought you had, every action you did was a further provocation of God's just wrath against wicked sinners. You didn't love God. You didn't love your neighbor. And everything about you just said you are going to hell. That was your condition. He says earlier, remember, we were... uh, We were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So Paul says, don't start thinking that you were just a little more special than other people. That's why I hate Arminianism as a system. Don't hate Arminians. All right, that's sometimes just a stage in a person's sanctification, one of my theology professors told us. They grow out of it as they get to know themselves, hopefully. But Arminianism says that, well, you still have free will, and so you are able to make a choice. Well, that's good. What about the guy that doesn't? Well, he just wasn't as smart as you, apparently, or just as good. There was in you some little bit of goodness where you chose Christ. And it's what a blasphemous thing to say in light of what Paul says. We were dead in trespasses and sins. It's to say, well, you're you're assaulting the dignity of man. You better believe I am. Man has no dignity outside of Christ. We're a bunch of rebellious, filthy sinners that have destroyed ourselves and the world we live in. Look around and see what happens, what those that are outside of Christ are doing. That was us. We would have been right there with him. You look at the most vile you know, person, whatever your, your view is of things, you say, what a horrible person that, that, that guy or that woman is. Beloved, apart from the grace of God, you know better. You might not have done the things that they're doing, but that's only because God kept you. He put certain what we call common grace influences around you in your life by giving you family members, people that that, that talk to you, putting you in a community perhaps where there was a stronger Christian influence so you you had a sense of morality about yourself. That wasn't anything that you brought forth or because there was some innate goodness in you. That was just God keeping you from actually completely destroying yourself until the time when you heard the gospel. God was merciful to you because his love was there you know he has loved us with an everlasting love but in and of ourselves we were children of wrath just as the others we were without hope they were cut off alienated and powerless to do anything other than provoke god's just wrath against himself yet well that's the other way of saying but okay unbeknownst to them the ephesians and unbeknownst to a lot of us they had an everlasting friend they had someone who loved them who was in a position to help them. They couldn't help themselves, neither could we, but there was someone who had covenanted with God the Father to be their Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who pledged himself to be their surety, that is to stand in their place, and to die for them, to to bear the hell that they deserved in his sufferings on the cross, that the full force of God's wrath 100% against the elect, that is, those whom the Father had given to the Son, would be poured out completely upon Jesus Christ in his sufferings on the cross. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's why Paul says that he, through the everlasting spirit, or eternal spirit, offered himself without spot or without blemish to God. Uh, Christ offered an everlasting sacrifice. What he went through on the cross has an eternal aspect to us, to it. He didn't just suffer for the, the six hours he was on the cross. There was He did physically in his body, but there was something about his sufferings that speak to eternity because of the virtue of his person and the intensity of what he endured. It has eternal merit. So Christ, I've said this before, what he underwent for us, we can't even begin to fully understand. 
is the equivalent of all of us burning in hell under the wrath of God, that is the fierce flames of a provoked righteousness from a just and holy God, you know, slamming us against the rocks in the lake of fire for eternity. That is what happened to Christ. That's what he endured. That's the intensity of what he underwent there. And the only reason why he could do that in his humanity is because he is both God and man in one person. And his divinity upheld his humanity so that in his person, in his humanity, he could under, undergo what you and I deserve. He took your hell. It had your name on it. He took it away. He covenanted to do that. We're told in uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, a text I quote often, but it's important to know that uh, Paul writing to Timothy referred to Jesus and he says, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, literally before the times of eternity or before eternal times. Prakranon Ionion, okay? Uh, before eternal times. And so... Christ stood for you. Grace was given to you in Christ Jesus before time began or before eternal times. Understand eternal times, that's what we refer to, you know, eternity past, eternity future. Really putting the terms past and future on the term eternity could be uh, challenged, I think. But we get the idea. We're in this present space-time continuum. We're going to continue to be in a space-time continuum throughout eternity because we're creatures. But we refer to the time before the creation and then the time after this present world is uh, dealt with. Christ Jesus stood for you then. You were given grace in Christ Jesus before eternal times. So God always did have a love for you, even though you had messed yourself up and had fallen in Adam. In uh, Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 20, uh, when the writer uh, pronounces a benediction upon those who read the epistle, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, then note he says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we have Christ that was stood for us. We were given grace in Christ before eternal times. Christ always stood for you in the counsel of God in eternity. And we are looking to him alone who saves us and who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's why we speak of that God is a covenant-keeping God. There's that covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in time, that covenant is worked out in the administrations, you might say, of the covenant. We see the covenant of grace, you know, various administrations. You know, we have Abraham with circumcision. Then after that, we have now the gospel is preached and the sacraments of the current administration of the gospel or the Lord's Prayer, excuse me, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are the ceremonies that go along with it. But the gospel is to be preached. Things are a little different now. You don't have to come and offer a lamb or another animal, a clean animal, to approach God. We come to God through the finished sacrifice of his son. So through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Christ, we're told in the book of Revelation uh, that, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the uh, the one who 
uh, has cleansed us through his blood, that he is the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. So Christ died for us. He pledged himself to die for us. So unbeknownst to the Ephesians and often to us, we had an everlasting friend in the courts of heaven, and that's Jesus Christ, who pledged himself to be our surety through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That is, it was determined by in God's plan and purpose, as Peter says, he being delivered by the determinate counsel uh, and foreknowledge of God, uh, he told the men in Jerusalem, you have crucified with wicked hands, you crucified whom God raised up. So it was foreordained, but it didn't excuse their sin in, in murdering him unjustly. But God raised him from the dead. Uh, that he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God had a plan, and it was that Christ would die for our sins. Christ pledged himself to be our surety through the blood of the everlasting covenant and to fully redeem us by paying our debt to God's justice by suffering in our stead and shedding his blood for us on the cross. Having removed our sins, that's what we call expiation. You know, we have propitiation is toward God. Christ propitiated the wrath of God. That is, he, he satisfied God's justice. Expiation is that Christ took our sins away. So Christ removed our sins, the impediment that blocked us from being brought near to God, and he's now removed it through the call of the gospel when that salvation is applied by the Holy Spirit. He brings us home to God so that we're no longer separated from the promises. And so we refer to the efficaciousness, the effectiveness, the power and the virtue and the ability to affect change through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is because he died for us. Note the, the present ongoing efficacy or power of Christ's precious and cleansing blood. In 1 John 1, 7, John says, you know this text, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is cleansing us from all sin. There's that ongoing cleansing in the fellowship of his people. The Holy Spirit uses that to effect change in your life. He gets sin out of your life, and that's why it's so important to be in fellowship with God's people. You know, you know, going to churches, you know, kind of like, oh, should I go or shouldn't I? It's important to be in fellowship with God's people, not just Sunday mornings, but at other times when we have opportunities to gather. The Holy Spirit's at work where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name. There he is in their midst. And that ironing, iron sharpening iron aspect of our fellowship together, God uses that to change us. And the Holy Spirit, as we say, applies the blood of Christ to our lives and begins to affect change. If we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, and then it's a present verb, is cleansing us from all sin. So if you want to see your life improve, be in fellowship with God's people. I'm not just talking about going to baseball games. You can do that. But being in fellowship around the Word. You know, have have prayer together and uh, be with God's people. In Hebrews 9, at verses 13 and 14, uh, the writer to the Hebrews is contrasting the finished work of Christ with the Mosaic administration where they had to offer lambs and goats and things like that. And he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer are sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, that is, they're pronounced ceremonially clean, how much more shall, present tense, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse, and that's present tense, be cleansing your conscience from dead works. Your conscience is the very innermost part of who you are. It's your heart of hearts. 
He's able to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's able to get the garbage, the rot, and the filth out of your life. How so? By trusting in Jesus. In Revelation, as I just read, uh, John, in writing, saluting the churches, he says, Grace to you and peace. <clears throat> this is Revelation 1.5. Uh, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. John praises Christ. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's washed us from our sins. We've been cleansed in the blood of Christ. Now, Peter says in Acts 15, you know, the Pharisee party, they, some were saying, oh, well, the Gentiles have to be circumcised. And keep the law in order to be saved. In Acts 15, if you read the first verses of that chapter, there were men came up into Antioch and those regions, and they taught the disciples, saying, except you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. They say, you have to earn your salvation. Paul and those with him opposed that. So they went down, had the council in Jerusalem, and uh, the men that were there said, no, we didn't send those guys out. That's not what we preach. Peter, uh, he argues against the circumcision party by testifying that God made no distinction among believers based upon ceremonial or sacramental obedience. But, here's what Peter said, God put no difference between us, that is the Jews, and them, meaning the Gentiles. Now listen, because we've talked about the blood of Christ. How does that work? How do we have this? Purifying their hearts by faith. Note that, purifying their hearts by faith. How does the Holy Spirit apply the blood of Jesus Christ to your life? By faith, that is trusting Christ. John, in his vision of the, the vast multitude before the throne of God, uh, when he saw that, it says in uh, Revelation 7, verse, verse uh, 13 and 14, it says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, Who are these which are arrayed in white robes? He asked John. Uh, and where did they come from? And I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, did they do that? Well, by trusting in Jesus. You know, Christ Jesus cleanses our hearts. We receive this cleansing. Our hearts are purified by faith. The uh, importance of that cannot be... Uh, overemphasize. It's by faith alone that we are saved. We're justified by faith. We're sanctified by faith. You know, if, whatever your difficulties are, if you're facing troubles, what should you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him. You know, you have situations you don't know your way out of. What should you do? Trust Him. That's why He says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will hear you. I will answer you. and You will glorify me. God gives you that promise. So, we have this, this benefit that we receive by faith. How does the Holy Spirit affect this cleansing and purging of our consciences and the transformation of our lives? Through faith in Jesus Christ. He purifies our hearts by faith. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Okay, He sanctifies us. It's by the ongoing application. So Paul could say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, he doesn't just say the door's been opened. He says, you've been brought near. Like in Psalm 65 when it says, blessed is the man whom you cause to approach. Okay, You've been brought near. The reason why you've approached God through Jesus Christ, Jesus said, uh, no man can come unto me except the Father who has sent me draw him. He also said, no man comes to the Father except by me. 
that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what caused you to approach God? God drew you. He drew you to himself because he loves you. You who, in Christ Jesus, now, you who were far off, you can remember that. You don't have to be afraid to look back at your past. You can say, yeah, I was a miserable, sinful wretch deserving of hell. But God made a difference, and I'll give him all the glory. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And by that we understand all the things we were just referring to. Because of his sacrifice for us, his love to us, his covenant faithfulness. You've been brought near. Note that again. Not just the doors open, but you've been brought in. And brought near to God. Because you're near to his heart. Because he loves you. He's loved you with an everlasting love. So may God be pleased to put this in us in such a way in our thinking that it will affect our lives in the coming days, today and in the future. That we'll remember what we were, but remember who we are now. We belong to Christ. He gets all the glory. He is at work. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because your sins have been taken care of. Your sins have been atoned for. The only thing that can separate you from God is your sin. That's been dealt with. So God's not going to throw you away. If you're struggling, he's not going to give up on you. You may feel like you're giving up. Sometimes it's okay to give up on yourself a little bit. And by that I don't mean quitting. I mean just say, Lord, you're going to have to do this. And start praying and trusting him. It didn't work. Notice this all has to do... Talks about us walking and us being, you know, God's uh, foreordained good work doers, you might say. He's the one that's in control. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's give him all the thanks and praise. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to seal your word to our hearts and minds. Help us to trust you. We pray, Lord, whatever our circumstances might be, the difficulties we face, whether finances or relationships or health, or just the myriad of other things, Lord, that come upon us in this life, help us to trust in you, Lord. Give us that faith that your word speaks of. Give us that persevering endurance that comes through faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Work within us that which is well-pleasing in your sight, Heavenly Father. Be glorified in our lives. Forgive us where we have failed. Forgive us our waywardness, our dullness, our stupidity, and just the frowardness of our own hearts, Lord. And bring us to yourself. Draw us near, Lord. Make us aware of it. Grant to us to really become your servants and to love you and to love others and to do those things that your word calls us to do and and to honor you, Lord, by being your people and serving you, Lord, whether on the job or at home or at school or uh, any place you, we there are finding ourselves, Lord, that we would seek to honor you and do the best we can for your glory and praise. This we ask, Father, with the forgiveness of our sins, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.